Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains themes of self-harm and suicidal behavior. You're listening to the Alonement Podcast. I'm your host, Francesca Spector. And this show is all about your longest and most important relationship. The one you have with yourself. It doesn't matter if you're single, married or somewhere in between. Alonement means valuing your time alone, regardless of your romantic status. Each week, I ask a new guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. This week, I'm here with writer Derek Awusi. I learned something about... I definitely learned a lot about myself when I was writing this book. And it made me kind of accept certain things about myself, I guess, and kind of how to separate my own personality from the personality that borderline personality disorder forces upon you. Derek Owusu is a writer, poet and podcaster. He is a former co-host of the Mostly Lit podcast. And in July 2019, Derek signed a two book deal with Murky Books, which is Stormzy's imprint at Penguin Random House. His debut book, that Reminds Me, a novel written in verse, was published in November 2019 and has since been nominated for the Desmond Elliott Prize for Literature. Derek, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. That reminds me is it's not autobiographical, but no. it's quite easy to draw parallels, I suppose, between your life and the life of your character, Kay's, because he grows up in foster care, mm. for instance. When you grew up, you were in foster care until the age of eight. And you've spoken about reconnecting with your Ghanaian heritage after that point. What was that like for you once you'd gone through a lot of your childhood already mm. I wouldn't even call it reconnecting I was connecting it was the first time um, you know when I went to foster care I was like five months old or something like that um, so it was a culture shock because you know I grew up in Long Melford which is a little village in Suffolk and you know with a white middle class family my foster mom was like 65 when I got there and they just did things so kind of like you know you had breakfast then you had dinner, then you had tea time, you go berry picking. Yeah, so it was a shock getting to, you know, Tottenham, Ghanaian, you know, working class family where there was no structure to the meals. Nobody ate at tables together. It was like, are you hungry? I'm going to go eat. Or I'm eating my food on the floor while I'm watching television, you know. So it was a, it was a massive, massive culture shock for me. Um, 
the one I didn't go, I didn't get over for for a long time. And I, I, I probably had an accent as well. I can't remember, but I must have because I was living in Suffolk. So yeah, I obviously wasn't speaking the way the people in London spoke. Um, so yeah, it, it it took a while for me to adjust. And your experience with foster care, could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, it was great. I loved it. Um, a lot of people, I know a lot of people have a hard time in foster care. You know, they bounce from one foster home to another, but I loved it. I loved my foster mum. I loved my foster dad. The family we had there, there was about five other um, West African kids in the house. It was, um, yeah, it was great, you know. And are you still in touch with them? No, so my foster mum died of cancer, um, I believe about I'm 30, about 16, 17 years ago. My foster dad died more recently. I think he just died of old age. And I wasn't able to go to either funeral because my mum didn't tell me my foster mum was dead until about four months, four years later. Mm-hmm. She was trying to protect me. Um, so she didn't tell me. I knew my foster dad had died, but I was just kind of too scared to go to the funeral. I didn't want to go. But I'm, I'm go- so I'm going to go back to to Long Melford when it's time for me to write my sec my follow up to that reminds me, and I'm just going to go back there and see if everything I remember is still there. Do you how do you keep that distance between what you experience and what your character is experiencing? It's a good question. I've, I've been I'm still learning how to do that. My publicist knows how to do that. You know, she kind of wrote out kind of answers to generic questions that like journalists will ask me. Um, and what we did was we made sure we put a, a kind of like an author's note at the beginning of the book as well to say that this is literally just, it's fictional. So it's my imagination. Um, but a lot of the time people come up to me and say, oh, so you know when this happened to you? And I have to kind of correct them and say, this didn't happen to me, this happened to Kay. Um and myself, sometimes when I'm talking about characters, I'm like, oh, yeah, and my brother did this. And they're just like, oh, I thought it wasn't about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. But it's because I had my brother in mind when I was writing a particular character. I still identify my brother with that person. Um, so I'm, I'm still learning how to do that. And why was it important for you not to make it autobiographical? It, I mean, it wasn't something that really crossed my mind. I mean, when I created Kay, I knew I was creating a fictional character. I didn't say to myself, I want to write a memoir, but kind of really in this kind of, um, this fictional, this fictional world, it, it didn't occur to me at all. And yet, is it still an uncomfortable process when you're bringing those memories forth in order to inform your characters? Yeah, absolutely. I think when I'm trying to create, like, a, I guess, a traumatic event, I never call it traumatic, I never call it trauma. Um, I just feel like that's too obvious. So whenever I'm trying to, you know, bring forth an event that I feel will affect Kay in the future, that's really hard. And I think it's because of my writing process. I can't write anything unless I really feel what I want my character to feel. So sometimes I'll kind of sit down for about 30 minutes. I know what my, I want my character to feel and I'll try and put myself into that state, which is um, probably a very unhealthy way to write. But it's the only way I know how to write. So... And that, that that can be hard, but sometimes it can be really enlightening. Actually, uh, I just kind of I learned something about. I I definitely learned a lot about myself when I was writing this book, and it made me kind of accept certain things about um, myself, I, I guess, and kind of how to separate my own personality from the personality that borderline personality disorder kind of forces upon you. It's still hard, but de- writing about you know, a person like myself who's gone through these particular events helped, definitely. 
Do you think creating that distance from yourself helped you to perhaps be a bit more sympathetic to what you went through? Um, yeah, def- I, it definitely helped me kind of, you know, empathise with people who are going through similar situations or people who have who have a kind of like mental disability that is, I guess, scary to most people. It just wasn't scary to me anymore. Um, I could kind of see people through the schizophrenia or, you know, the psychosis or whatever and just know that there is somebody beneath um, all of that that is worth knowing and worth helping and worth sympathising and empathising with. I think it, it helped me become more sympathetic to other people who have gone through that. You know, how I treat myself is not how I treat other people. It's... I find that really interesting what you say about not treating yourself the same way that you treat other people. What is the disparity there? Would you say you treat other people better or...? Yeah, absolutely, I treat other people better. I think, you know, I've spent 31 years with myself and I'm, I'm kind of tired of it now. So um, I, it's almost like, yeah, I'm tired of myself and I can see potential in other people. And, you know, I sometimes I just feel like I am, I am kind of like just a backpack that I have to carry around with myself. Um, and it's like it's strapped to me. I'm strapped to myself indefinitely. And it's annoying. I mean, I annoy myself all the time. Um, when I was writing K, some of the things that he was doing annoyed me as well. But I knew that that was part of it. I knew that that was part of the journey, part of his disorder or, or you know, his reaction to certain circumstances. And when you say you're carrying yourself around like a backpack, what do you find, define as yourself? Do you define yourself as your mental disorder that you have spoken about before mm. or do you define yourself as something different that's a question i haven't been able to answer yet you know um i mean i write and that reminds me you know k says he doesn't know where he begins and the bpd stops because it's a disorder such it, it really aff- you you do start to think you are your disorder you start to think that your behavior and all this oh it's just me um and then when someone tells you, no, no, it's not you, it's the disorder. And, you know, when I first got the symptoms of, of borderline personality disorder, when my my therapist gave it to me, it felt like I was reading a horoscope. I was like, oh, my God, like, this is all me. Mm. So then I thought, so then if this is the disorder, who is Derek? And so it's a, it's a question that's ongoing, one that I guess I'll probably be able to answer maybe in like 25 years or something, but not at the moment. For those listeners who don't necessarily understand what borderline personality disorder is, could mm-hmm. you summarise? Um, yeah, I can try. Um, I mean, it affects people differently. It's essentially about you're unable to regulate your emotions. You feel things in the extreme. So one of the, I guess, symptoms of BPD is that you go through a long stream of dysfunctional uh, relationships where they talk about you idolise someone when you first meet them. And you feel like you're in love with them. And then suddenly out of nowhere, you devalue them. You can't stand them. You can't be around them. Or you become paranoid. You think they're going to leave you. And you start doing things to stop them leaving you. Because another part of BPD is you have this real real attachment issues. And then obviously there's, you know, the problematic ways to cope. I think it's like 10, 15% of people who have BPD die by suicide. There's a lot of self-harm, not even just cutting, like, you know, of drinking a lot, poisoning yourself and burning yourself with lives and, and things like that. So, if, I mean, it's so vast, the symptoms are so vast and vary from person to person. And there's also the, 
kind of like you have no sense of self. It's like you have no identity. You know, when I was growing up, I remember I used to always try and model myself on other people, like in t on TV or in movies, um, when I was older, in books and stuff like that. And I, I didn't think there was anything strange about it, but people started telling me, why do you, why are you always changing your name on Facebook? Why are you always changing your name on this, this, that, or the other? And I just thought, oh, it's because I like the names, but it's because I was trying to kind of like become those people because I didn't know who I was myself. Um, the question of your name is very interesting because you, I believe, had a different name when you were reunited with your mother mm -hmm. at the age of eight when you came out of foster care. You had a Ghanaian name that you hadn't been familiar with. I don't really remember um, being aware of my surname at all when I was in foster care. And even when I came out of foster care, it was just, my name was Derek uh, Wiltshire. And then when I got older, my mom told me, oh, your middle name is Awusu. That's your granddad's name. I still use Derek uh, Wiltshire, like when I'm at work and stuff like that. Um, but I'll be, obviously writing, I feel more comfortable saying my name is Derek Awusu. Because I literally have no idea where the Wiltshire comes from. I've asked my mum, she just said she liked it. I know the name Derek, she named me after Derek Trotter from Only Fools and Horses. Which I don't really mind, it's fine. <laughs> I'm not bothered by that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's strange because I do feel like Derek. I feel like a Derek. But the, although I feel more comfortable with Wusu, I, I wouldn't say I feel like that name is me. It just, I, I can tolerate that name more than Wilshire. What sort of names would you change yours to on Facebook? Oh, just kind of like, uh, like a movie I've seen, like, like I used to change to Jamal Wallace, who's the main character of Finding Forrester. I used to love that movie. I would change it to like Wade Wilson, which is uh, Deadpool's name. I would change it to uh, Jean Desjardins, who's a French actor, who's the main character in The Artist. Just, yeah, just anything I thought was, if I saw a personality or a person and I thought this person was interesting and or quirky and I like that it is idiosyncrasies and, and, and that kind of thing, I'll just, just change my name to theirs. And do you think that was part of not really knowing who you were? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think so, yeah. Um, because I feel like on my Twitter, on my uh, Facebook feed, I was like the only person who was doing that. So yeah. people always complain, I can't find you on Facebook. What's, what's your name now? Sort of thing. Um, and even with jobs, I've had so many jobs. You know, there used to be a running joke in the gym that I used to work that, oh, when Derek leaves, the next time we see him, he's going to be a carpenter. Because I had, so, I had so many jobs and done so many things because I guess I don't know, I was looking for something. I still don't know what that thing is I was looking for, but yeah. I am almost hesitant to ask this question because I don't know what it's like to have suffered from BPD, but I would ask, do you think having gone through all those professions and having mm -hmm. experimented with those different identities, is there in any way... Do you feel like you've lived a number of different lives? And I guess what I'm guessing at is, do you think there's any positivity to having experienced all these different things? I think in terms of writing, yeah. When you're talking to people, it's interesting as well. You know, my ex-girlfriend, like, sometimes she would, we'd just be having a conversation and I'd come and say, oh yeah, I remember when I used to do this. And she's like, how many lives have you lived? <laughs> right? I mean, because... There's so many random things like, so for example, like I'm an author now. I used to be a professional bodybuilder. Then I worked at, um, I used to work at Hollister, just standing there, like while people were walking into the shop. Um, then I was a personal trainer. Then I was an operations manager. Then I was managing a hotel. Like just so many, uh, and I was working in a bookshop. 
I've done so many things. So that's always interesting in terms of conversation. And in terms of writing as well, I can draw from so many different things. But then sometimes when you sit down and you think, if you just think, what, what, what is all of this leading to? What is the path that I'm on at the moment? It's impossible to answer. Yeah. So mm. from a creative perspective, yes, but not from a personal perspective. No, definitely not. No, no. Um, because the way with the disorder, the way you kind of move from job to job, identity to identity, you move from relationship to relationship, friendship to friendship. And that's not cool because there's other people involved in that. And you can't really articulate what it is, what's going on with you, why all of a sudden you just don't want to be around them anymore. You just don't want to talk to anybody anymore. And that's not fair. And I think one thing that I did, I did pick up on that, that I was, there was a pattern to my behavior when it came to friendships and relationships. And I remember sitting down, I stopped talking to people for about two weeks. And I was just thinking, thinking about myself. And I wrote down a list of things that I wanted to change about myself. And about six years later, I found that in an email and I sent it to my, my ex-girlfriend and she called me and she was like, everything on this list are things that I've wanted to say to you mm. but I couldn't I didn't know how to broach them so she's like I'm so glad that you at one point you were aware of this because now you can be aware of it again yeah and that's when the journey started towards me kind of realizing there's something not right here that's an amazing amount of self-awareness to be mm. able to write a list and then as you to connect with someone who cared about you and who maybe wanted to change that I mm. suppose for the better I mean what kind Absolutely, of things yeah. were on the list um, so kind of like, don't engage in conversations just for the sake of it. I mean, that can, that can be said for anybody, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you feel an impulse to do something, don't act on it instantly. Stop. Think about it for about 20 minutes and then decide if that's what you want to do. Because another um, symptom of BPD is impulsive behavior. You do a lot of things with impulse. You spend on impulse and all these kind of things. Um, but I, I do believe by had BPD or been depressed since I was about 12 years old. Because I remember instances where I was so low and I was thinking about death and all of these crazy things. And then my mum would bring my little brother in, in his pushchair, and I'll look at him and then I'll kind of be like, oh, this is why I'm living. This is why I'm, I need to be happy because of my little brother. He's laughing, he's dribbling and he had a massive smile on his face and stuff like that. And I don't think a 12-year-old would be thinking in that way unless they were really going through something. Yes, that's quite a poignant notion mm. of a 12-year-old thinking that. So earlier when you said that you read the symptoms of BPD, you say that it seemed like a horoscope because it was so accurate. Were there any particular symptoms that you kind of thought, yes, this is exactly what I've been going through and now I understand it? Yeah, all of them. The impulsive behaviour, um, going from one passion to another in terms of jobs not even just jobs hobbies i used to collect coats then i was collecting perfume then i was collecting watches then i do you know what i mean just loads of different things like that and obviously like the um you know the dangerous behaviors you know i think as well like when i started cutting at first i didn't think there was anything wrong with it um but then when i saw it on the list then it kind of clicked that okay this is not normal when did that first start happening um, about two years ago, actually. Um, I'm not sure why. I don't know. I think I was, I think at the time I was so overwhelmed with like emotion. I just needed something to kind of get it out of me. And I just thought, let me try it and kind of, you know, cut myself. And, and I did. And it made me feel better. It was almost like all of the emotion just drained out of me. 
you know, at times if I kind of like had a crush on someone, it would be so intense that, you know, I'd be clenching my fist, grinding my teeth. I remember being in university and, 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 and liking someone and literally being on the floor, like in like, it, it was literally like agony because I liked them so much. And I was just like, this is, this is so weird. Like, and you know, because I was reading a lot, it's kind of, like, oh, I'm just a passionate person. I know that's just not normal. It's not normal at all. Um, so yeah, I started and it kind of relieved me. But then, you know, you can become addicted to cutting, which is, um, again, a consequence of, of, of the BPD. Cause sometimes you don't even need relief, but because you do it so often, you just do it because you're used to doing it. Um, and then obviously self harm comes in different forms, like poisoning yourself, drinking a lot. Um, just basically doing things to yourself that are not good for you. Do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah. And was self-harm the main addiction for you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Self-harm and, um, seriously excessive drinking of alcohol. Um, not even, so I wouldn't even say I was an alcoholic because I didn't feel like I needed it. I just felt like I wanted to do that to myself. Um, and if I was, if I was in a good mood for like days, I wouldn't drink. I wouldn't crave drink. I, I wouldn't even think about it. But it's when, when I was in the, when I was low and stuff like that, I was like, oh, just, let me just have a drink or, or whatnot. Um, so yeah, just main, mainly, um, those, those two things with the kind of poison and stuff. When I used to kind of overdose, it wasn't really to poison myself. It was just, I mean, I was just trying to end myself really. Um, so I wouldn't say that I was, some people do say that's a form of self-harm, but I, I personally wouldn't say that. And was that overdosing on alcohol? Was that drugs? No, that was, um, my actual, actually my medication. Cause I would get like four weeks worth. But after the, a couple of overdoses, they, they stopped giving me four weeks worth. It's like giving me, I think like four days worth. Cause what would happen is that I would be referred to a crisis team. They would come to my house every day, give me my medication, ask me how I'm doing and so on and so forth. And it got to the point where they put me in something called a recovery house, which is, it's, it's like a psychiatric ward light. So there's, there's nurses and mental health people around all the time. You have your room and stuff. You just have to tell them when you're going out, what time you're coming back. You can't come back after a certain time. They have your medication. So every morning you come, you see the doctor, they give you your meds, you go back up, up to your room. So I was there for six weeks at one point. Then I came out, I guess I kind of relapsed and I went back in, come back out. Never going back there again, though. That's, that's, that's for sure, because it's really scary. And, you know, you, because I used to stay in my room a lot. And they used to tell me to come out. But I would just kind of be like, if I'm around people who are like me, who are suffering worse than I am, it makes me feel awful. It makes me feel worse. So I, I didn't really come out of my room a lot. It sounds like you're an incredibly empathetic person. Yeah, I don't know if that's me or the uh, the BPD because what they do say is that you have like this kind of, kind of heightened sense of sensitivity, I guess. You know, you kind of you just notice little things like you notice when you're talking to someone what they do if like if they kind of take a quick like look at the clock or something like that, you just know okay, they don't want to talk to me anymore or, or they're in a rush. And you just draw these massive conclusions. It's like Sherlock Holmes. You draw these massive conclusions from these little things. Yeah, I, I feel for other people a lot more than I feel for myself. You know, when I was younger, I, I couldn't watch Crime Watch, not because I was scared, because I thought I just feel so bad for the, the people who have gone through something or the families or, do you know what I mean? 
when you're taking your medication though do you think that that empathy lessens or do you think that's still very much there i think it lessens the empathy for me if i i could be you know i could have taken like five pills for my medication and i'll be walking down the street i still won't be numb to somebody who's who's homeless i still won't be um numb to somebody something happening to somebody i would still want to help them do you know what i mean um yeah it just makes me numb to myself and is that something that you've made progress with or is that something you're still dealing with that trying to care for yourself it's something i'm still dealing with yeah i think it's a it's a long process going to take a while but i feel like i'm on the right path <clears throat> i don't cut anymore the thought of it doesn't like it makes me feel a bit sick sometimes um drink a lot less and i try my best to enjoy like good moments when something good happens i try my best to enjoy it's hard it's really really hard but um i do try mm. the self harm so you said that only started two years ago and mm-hmm. you, you've overcome that now mm-hmm. what was it that helped you overcome that i think it was just i don't know i think i just woke up one morning and i just took a look at my arms and i was just like what have i done to myself um and from then i was just like i'm never doing this again i think i just i just decided that this is not going to happen again you know and i'm i'm able to recognize the kind of um the seeds of of something dangerous about to happen in terms of my life and i can say okay i'm feeling like this i know where this is going to go so i didn't try and take the steps to take my mind away from it so that level of self awareness does that come from simply experience um not you know i think it comes from reading i mean when i was in university i was um i went through a stage where i was completely obsessed with like the existentialists and because of their philosophy the way they used to essentially romanticize what i would say mental health issues i started doing that myself and it made me very self aware of things that were happening around me you know because you start to um you look at the world and you look at yourself and you kind of just drop all pretenses drop everything that's supposed to work in the world and you try and see it what it is i think albert camus called it like the absurd state where you just see everything for the meaningless things that is and i used to think like that a lot but um i think that's that's what really kind of i guess helped yeah i could say helped myself wins your university experience really intrigues me because mm. most people go to university and they do their degree and they stick to that and they turn up for the occasional lecture and mm. that's that but i understand yours was very different yeah it was it was um i mean when i first i went to uni when i was 24 I was kind of like not fourth well I mean you know I I never thought I was smart enough to go to university so you know I was doing other things at the time I was a personal trainer and I was training my cousin and we were just having a I think we were having a conversation about uh, morality or something like that and he just stopped he stopped training he said to me why why did you never go to uni and I was like I'm not I'm not smart enough to go and he was like I think you are and then the next day I was I think I was walking to the shop and he drove past me um he was like I'll get in the car get in the car so I jumped in the car and we're still talking he's still bringing up university I was like yeah. no nah, I'm not going to university just leave me alone I'm happy personal training I'm you know I'm making some good money leave it at that and then that same night he um I think it was the same night he he came to my house at like 11 in the evening or something and he came with his sister um and I was just like okay come in everyone we're just all just chilling and his sister took my laptop and she was just typing away and I was kind of just looking over now and then what's she doing on my laptop <laughs> 
And I was like, you know, what, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm writing your personal statement. A couple of weeks later, he comes to my house, comes in and starts packing my stuff. He was like, this uni's accepted you. I've already sorted out your accommodation. Let's go. And I was like, oh, forget. All right, I was like, let's go then. Let's go. So he drove me all the way to Manchester, dropped me off in my dorms, and he said, I'll pick you up when you graduate. And he did pick me up when I graduated as well. Um, so yeah, that was that was an interesting route. But then when it's, when I got there, that's when I discovered literature through my exercise. Cause I was studying exercise science, my exercise science um, lecturer, and just said, read some Dickens. It will get you in the the mold for reading scientific journals. So I didn't read Dickens, but I went to the library, and for some reason, D. H. Lawrence was floating around in my head. I have no idea why. I've never come across his writing before, but I picked up a short story of his. Um, and I was blown away. I was like, wow, like this is lit. I was like, this is literature. Um, and I just started reading more and more. I started reading all of the classics. Didn't know they were classics, but I was just reading them. Became obsessed with Oscar Wilde. And I used to have just loads of posters in my dorm room of like all of these authors all around me. And, um, it was great. I loved it. It was, it was, it was amazing. I loved the way they would make me think, like think, think in ways I've never thought before. That's why I love the existentialists, Albert Camus, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. I, I loved all of them. And oh my God, and the great guy, I became absolutely obsessed with. I've got a Gatsby tattoo on my arm. I became obsessed with F. F Scott Fitzgerald as well. What does the tattoo say? It just says Gatsby. It's just, it's just the name here. Because I just thought to myself, he's. I feel, I feel like Gatsby is so relatable. I know everyone says, oh, he's like a metaphor for the American dream or whatever. But I, I feel like as a person, he kind of just represents anybody who's born into a life that they don't feel comfortable with and they're trying to rise above it. That's what he was trying to do. He was trying to become, he's working class, literally trying to become middle class is what he was trying to do. But when it comes to class, especially in this country, you can't buy your way into it. It's almost like it's a culture. You have to be born into it. So you could have money, but that won't necessarily make you middle class to the people who are born and bred middle class. You know, they just they just see you as this, a guy who's got money, not really middle class. Like your house has a number, it doesn't have a name. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, but yes, yeah, so I I loved Gatsby. I loved I loved all of the man. It was such a great time reading those books for the first time. It was it was amazing. It was, it was really amazing. Who was it at university that turned you towards literature? It was my exercise science. No, it was my research methods uh, lecturer. Um, uh, called Colin and um he actually came he actually came to my launch I couldn't believe it I um at my launch but that reminds me I was I think I was reading an extract and I looked up and he was sitting there in the audience and I was like oh my god like Colin's he, he actually came and he came up to me afterwards and he was like I'm so proud of you man I'm so proud of what you've done what you've achieved and uh, that was it was amazing it sounds like you had some people in your life who really believed in you your cousin David mm. and Colin yeah, yeah, I guess I get I guess I did, yeah. Um and I probably wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for them. I mean not even just them actually, uh, my um my best friend Yomi, Yomi Adegoke, she was the one who was kind of like, You have to start writing because and this was because of WhatsApp. So, you know, when we first started talking to each other, um I was telling her about my life and I was just WhatsApping her and she was like it feels like you're writing a story. She was like, I'm, she was like, in the next day, I reread the messages because I just loved how, how they read. And she was like, you should start writing. She's actually the person who gave me the idea for safe. And she, again, you know, took matters into her own hands as people do with me. 
contacted her agent and her agent emailed me and said, oh, Yomi's um, been in touch. Let's meet up for a coffee. I'm out for a coffee and she was like, I want to represent you. And then the rest is history. Wow. Yeah. Because, of course, she's an established author herself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, incredible journalist as well. And she just, yeah, she just saw something in my writing that I didn't see myself, you know. And I, I sent her a few things from, you know, I used to write for online uh, publications. And... um she read them and she was like, this isn't you. She was like, you, she was like you're not writing with your own voice. Because at the time, honestly, I think I, was, I had like the voice of Bertrand Russell in my head when I was writing articles and stuff. And she was like, this isn't you. She was like, just write how you speak, write how you think. And she, she was like, trust me, it will be fine. And that's when I started doing that. And then that's when things started picking up for you. Why do you think you were writing like a dead white philosopher? I was, I was, I was reading too many uh, classics, <laughs> reading too many classics, thinking that the way to write authentically is like these people, not trusting in my own voice and where I've come from, my background, not believing that that's actually good enough when it is good enough. So once she said that to me, I have, I've never written like that since. Again, I started reading very late. I started with the classics. I mean, I, it's like I went the wrong way around. Even now that I think, I think who... Who was a role model for me growing up? I didn't think it was anybody. You know, I liked Mr. T, B.A. Baracus. I was a Will Smith fan, but I wouldn't say that these people inspired me or anything like that. I just kind of liked, I liked them as people. Do you think perhaps not having those role models mm-hmm. meant that you ended up connecting with you and being more authentically you? Because, for instance, your book, it's like nothing else I've ever read before, the, the sort of novel inverse format is just so unique Mm. Mm, interesting question um perhaps yeah maybe yeah maybe me not having a role model has allowed me to just write however i want to write there are two authors who gave me like a lot more confidence to write verse write uh, like a novel in verse that was jennifer clement and she wrote a book called widow basquiat which is unbelievably good so good and um claudia rankin who wrote she wrote citizen but i prefer don't let me be lonely and I just thought, wow, I didn't know that you were allowed to write in this way. Because none of the classics are written in verse. None of the modern classics are written in verse. Um, so, yeah, those two books that made me really think, okay, I can do this. What was it like being signed last March to Stormzy's imprint? Was that when that happened or was that did that happen sometime earlier before you were signed? No, yeah, so it was around, it was around March um, when um, they offered me the two-book deal. Which was it was supposed to be one book deal, but then I sent Stormzy's manager some of my um my poetry just so she could get a, like a feel of my writing. Mm. She knew what the kind of book I was going to write. But then we met up, and she was like, "I love the poetry. We want to publish the poetry. We haven't had any poetry yet." And then she did, and they offered me a two book deal. And the first book was was that reminds me. The second book's going to be teaching my brother to read. Um, and yeah, and that was, again, that's another instance of somebody taking my life in their hands just doing, doing it for me you know and but it's great I'm grateful were you a fan of him, his what was your connection there yeah I mean, everybody's a fan of Stormzy um I'd, I'd never met him before had no connection never spoken to him before um it was literally just through um through his his manager who I met and I, I sent her my work um but then I did eventually meet him you know really cool he was just like oh man you're he was, like he's he, he liked my book which was really nice, which was really cool, you know. He said he really enjoyed it. But, yeah, yeah, before that, I had, I had no connection with with, um, with Murky. Um, what was that like, knowing someone 
who's such a giant star already, mm. be backing you? I mean, so many people have backed you throughout your life. Do you um, do you think mm. that finally allowed you to know how brilliant you are and how brilliant your writing is and how much you had to offer? No, I wish, I really wish it did. I wish, um, I wish I could sit here and say, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I've written a very good book. I just can't do that. I'm definitely grateful and I'm happy with what's been produced, but I can't sit here and say that. It all just seems like a dream right now. I it does, yeah. I, that's that's exactly what it feels. It feels like a dream. It feels like I'm going to wake up any minute, so I don't want to get too comfortable in my bed. And I did know, I knew that I wanted to be involved in books in some, some way, but I never thought that I was going to write a book at 31. And how about the publicity side of things? Mm. Do you use social media now? I know you've spoken about previously when you used to use it. Yeah, I don't have any. So, I mean, I made a LinkedIn last week. Okay. I don't know if that counts as social media. It does. Yeah, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I made a LinkedIn, but I don't have anything else. I don't have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or anything like that. And did you used to? I did. I used to be on there so much. And yes. I think that's why I was like, I need to come off here because when I was really, really down, I'd be tweeting just crazy stuff about my life and how down I was and blah, blah, blah. And I think it got to the point where my timeline was just bored of what I was saying because it almost, in my head, it almost felt like, you know, you know, the importance of being earnest when, um, the lady, I can't remember her name, she, she says to, um, one of the characters, like, what's all this shilly shallying with the question if you're going to die or not? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I kind of felt like that to me. I just thought to myself, my followers must be thinking, bro, look, if you're going to kill yourself, just do it. Like, why this back and forth about the question? Um, so I just thought, no, I'm oversharing. I thought I need to come off. And plus, this is absolutely depressing. You'll be having a great day. If, if you check your timeline in the morning, usually you're going to have, you're going to have a terrible day because there are just so many people just spouting absolutely rubbish. And they say it with such confidence, like they really believe what they're saying. They absolutely don't. They don't. You know, Twitter is give a man a mask and they show you who you are. That's not how they, who they are in real life, in everyday interactions, but they get on there and they become horrible. Do you think because you are such an empathetic person that it's quite difficult for you to be on social media and not feel so connected to the mm. way that people are expressing themselves, those negative ways? Absolutely. I also think that... Um, I was expecting too much of people on Twitter. I was expecting people to care about me because I just thought to myself, I would care about you. But people don't care about you. They care about people thinking that they care about you. You know, it's all it's all a show. So that was another reason I just got cut off there. It was really it's really bad for my mental health. Derek, that's really sad to hear. But mm. you know, there are so many people that care about you in your life in real life outside of twitter mm. there are so many people that have believed in you mm. and i think perhaps do you find that you are able to focus more on those connections by being off twitter and not being not kind of thinking about all the people that maybe don't care about you as much as you would want them to yeah i i do think so i mean when i first um came off twitter um my ex-girlfriend was very happy because she was always telling me on it too much like you know so, but it was, I think because I felt lonely a lot as well, I was just on there. It felt like I was just in a group, you know, in a room full of people. And it kind of alleviated the loneliness a lot until you said something and nobody responded. And then you, you'd feel worse than you did at the beginning. Especially Twitter, it's just, oh God, it's a, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I, I would say that it's just, 
a terrible place to be. But there are other people who say, if it wasn't for Twitter, I wouldn't have met my wife or my best friend. And and these are valid stories and, and so on. But I just feel like the negativity, for me personally, outweighs the positivity. Mm. You know, it sounds like coming at it from the perspective that you are, which is of an incredibly empathetic person, it was it was just quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was very challenging. I got myself into some sticky situations where, because I was tweeting so personally, other people would come and tell me their stories then I'll take on their burden and try and help them. But at the same time, I'm going through exactly the same thing. Mm. And it was just, yeah, it was super heavy for me because I was just, I wanted to help everybody, but I just, I couldn't help myself at that point. So yeah, it was a stupid thing to do to try and take on everybody else's problems as well as my own. And how do you help yourself these days? Obviously you write Mm -hmm. and writing for you is such a big part of connecting with your past and working yourself out in a way. But Mm -hmm you know that you're going to be published into quite a large audience at this right. point. So yeah. do you, would you say that still serves as this private space for yourself or do you have other other spaces that you use in order to connect with yourself? I just guess just in my head, really. I think that's the only place that's private for me in, in my own head. And that, so I can be, I can be alone a lot and just sit down thinking about things just looking out the window or sometimes I go to South Bank and just sit on the benches at night and just look out at the, the the water and stuff like that I can do those things not for long but I can do them how long will you be out um so I can be out for I could not talk to people for like a week not a talk, week mm-hmm. yeah just not talk to anybody just just do what I'm doing watch Netflix write read do whatever so yeah but then it you you know, people say that they get drained by being around a lot of people. I get drained by being by myself too much. And then I feel like I need to be with people to recharge me a little bit. But it's like once I'm recharged, I'm just like, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm going, guys. Bye. Yes. Um, I think that's so interesting because I understand what you're saying in terms of recharging. I feel mm. it sounds perhaps that you're an extroverted person in that you recharge from being around other people but I would say as an extrovert that I certainly wouldn't be able to last a week maybe mm-hmm. maybe a day or two mm-hmm. <laughs> so it almost sounds like you're an extrovert but an extremely well-trained one in mm-hmm. terms of gaining that solo time as well yeah I, I, I mean I think I'm an introvert but then if I'm around the right people I'm definitely not an introvert so I think with intro, um, introverts and extroverts I guess it depends on the day and the circumstances, which one comes to light. Yeah. So would you say you're an ambivert, bit of both? Yes, I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moving on to your upcoming title, Mm -hmm. which is called Teaching My Brother to Read. Mm -hmm. So that's about a year long project in which you're trying to convince your younger brother to fall in love with literature as as you have. Could you tell me a little bit more about your relationship with your younger brother? Yeah, it's, um, it's great at the moment. It's really good. It's not always been like that. I mean, I kind of, I guess I would say I raised him. You know, when my mom was pregnant, I looked after my mom and, and stuff like that. I was taking him to school, picking him up from school. Yeah, so I went away to uni when my brother was 13. And when I came back, he was a completely different person. I didn't recognize him. Was hanging around with the wrong people. And um, yeah, it was heartbreaking to see because he's such a smart guy. And, and But then I also thought to myself, I wanted to share with him this gift, I guess, of literature. I wanted him to get into it and just kind of read him. Because he, he's inquisitive by nature, but he's still in that kind of mind state whereby he thinks reading is something academics do or it's a chore. 
it's arduous. He doesn't see reading as pleasure yet. And I'm hoping that this project that we do together will make him see it as pleasurable. What is it that's so valuable about the experience of reading for you that you want to pass that on to your brother so much? Ideas. I feel like reading helps you become a better person. It helps you to understand people a lot better. And just being able to communicate better with people and communicate with yourself a lot better. I mean, there's just so many benefits to, to reading. And, and if it's a good book, it's fun to read. It's, it's really enjoyable to, um, to do. Like, you know, watching a great movie, have fun. You, you enjoy yourself. Finally, what do you hope people reading your books will come away thinking? How do you hope that your books might change someone's life? I hope that it would it will allow people to look at mental health in a different way, to look up look at upbringing and see how the circumstances of your your birth and upbringing affect who you are as an adult. So yeah, that's what I would I'll hope people take away from the book. And um yeah, I hope I do hope to open a dialogue. People, you know, black men especially will come forward and be honest with ourselves and talk about things that we either shy away from or we feel that's taboo to talk about, you know, like, you know, sexual harassment, uh, mental health as well, you know, just just the things that we just really, even like in a barbershop, we don't even talk about these things in the barbershop, which is supposed to be a safe space for black men, but there's so many conversations that just do not get discussed anywhere. And I think it's time that we started um, opening ourselves up to that. Derek, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I feel like thank we've you. covered so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alonement Podcast. And thank you also to my guest, the honest and inspiring Derek Owusu. If you loved this episode, please do rate, review or subscribe. It makes all the difference to help other people discover the show. Join me next Friday for a brand new episode. Until next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.